You may find this hard to believe, but 60 songs that explain the 90s, America's favorite poorly named music podcast is back with 30 more songs than 120 songs total. I am your host, Rob Harvilla, here to bring you more shrewd musical analysis, poignant nostalgic reveries, crude personal anecdotes, and rad special guests all with even less restraint than usual. Join us once more on 60 Saws That Explain the 90s every Wednesday on Spotify. It's the Ringer NBA show presented by FanDuel. The second half of the NBA season is here, and you can bet on the action with an assist from FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays all in one page. Plus, start betting on the Explorer page and the Pulse and bet live same-game parlays for every NBA game. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gambling. Please visit theringer.com backslash RG to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 years and older and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit theringer.com backslash RG. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash RingerMBA. Just go to Indeed.com slash RingerMBA right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to Group Chat. I am Justin Barrier and joining me, two guys who are stepping away from Bernie the Mascot's bedside, Rob Mahoney, Big Waz. Guys, thanks for joining me on this somber, somber occasion. Yeah, we need to start a dialogue about what happened at, at, you know, Heat Nuggets Game 4 featuring one Conor McGregor. Did you guys see any of this on the broadcast? No. I can't remember if I saw it on the broadcast or on Twitter, but I remember seeing the punches thrown by one Conor McGregor, and it was more vicious than I, I think anyone expected, and apparently it was. This isn't Charles Barkley having no. a fun back and forth with the mascot and bonking the guy on the head. This is a freaking professional fighter taking this way further than he needed to, but I mean, that's why he's Conor McGregor, I guess. Well, even before that, even before the punches started being thrown, it was like it was one of the strangest things I've ever seen at an NBA game, which is Jason Jackson, the Heat broadcaster, came out at, at midcourt during like a timeout with Conor McGregor, and they did like an eight-minute segment on his new product, which we're not McGregor's? even gonna McGregor was like hawking some new product that was now a sponsor of the Miami Heat. And so they went through this elaborate spiel as if they were selling you a timeshare. And at the end of it, he just like one clocks Bernie and knocks him over, which I assume was part of the bit. And then, yeah, delivers this second apparently knockout punch. Uh, you know, Conor McGregor crossing a line. Who knew? And that did not, unfortunately, galvanize the Miami Heat in that game. Right. Well, I mean, they, they're, it's not like it was Nikola Jokic's fault. Like, you got to take it out on Conor McGregor. 
Um, Rob, you you are now on on the road. Uh, you're probably not in Bernie's shape, but how how are you feeling now? Preparing to go into Game Five. Uh, what when did you start this journey? A week or two ago. You know, I I have been metaphorically punched in the face by Conor McGregor. You know, the the Conor McGregor that is the NBA playoff schedule. But look, we're rallying, we're rolling, we're wheels down in Denver now. We're anxiously awaiting Game Five. I think it's I think it's going to be a great time now. Might also be the end of the series. I can't say I'm anticipating going back to Miami, but if it swings that way, who could possibly complain about another day on South Beach? <laughs> Benvenido in that instance. Yes. Waz, you're fresh though. You're you're fresh legs off the bench. Yeah, I feel great. Um, incredible win for the Nuggets last night. Uh, and I feel like the game might have even ended before eleven PM somehow. Uh for Ooh. once. Nice. And yeah, man, I'm good. I'm good to go. I'm fresh as a daisy. Actually going to a birthday party after this, just like my Ooh. man Ben Cruz. Wow. Uh, what what a day to celebrate. Uh, we're going to get to a Game 5 preview for the game on Monday. Uh, but first, I want to take a step back and I want to kind of assess where we are now and kind of the takeaways from these two teams making it to the NBA Finals. Around this time of year, you'll see a lot of people trying to draw conclusions, trends, lessons from the finals team. I think not only just in the media, but also on the NBA side. Like, what can we spin forward from what these teams have done in order to bring into our teams, into our culture? Um, admittedly, I think at times we overreach uh, at this point, in, in part because I think for a while tracking these trends was interesting. And then, like most things, it got overdone to the point where we might. Uh, say to ourselves, like, oh, th- th- we we draw too many conclusions from the most recent result as opposed to something that's actually a trend to carry forward. But that's why I wanted to talk with you, fine gentlemen, just to see, like, what is a trend? What is a lesson? And will we see it happening more and more in the league? And I do want to start with the biggest one on the board, which is one that we've been tracking year to year, probably since the Warriors came to form yes. with small ball and whatnot. And Charks uh, back in the day would be very good about kind of tracking this to see like who was uh, kind of the the queen on the chessboard, right? Like, is it going small? Is it these unicorns coming in? Uh, and so I asked Rob, does size matter? How much does size matter? And where do you think we are in terms of not only the center position, but like playing big versus playing small? Yeah, this is the perfect place to start in this broader trend conversation because we're sussing out, is it a trend or is it a singular talent that is exploiting something in this particular finals a la Nikola Jokic? I think the answer ultimately is the same as it's been in recent years, which is skilled size matters, right? Denver does not play a single big that can't handle and pass and shoot. Everyone can do a little of everything. And in fact, one of their biggest transformations in terms in terms of the rotation, especially in the non-Jokic minutes, is exercising all the bigs who couldn't. You know, your DeAndre Jordan types who is like, okay, they, they don't really fill the need we need them to have offensively. So I think that's kind of where we are. And that's the guys the Warriors played off the floor. Those were players who either couldn't hang defensively or couldn't be dynamic enough to contribute offensively. I think we're still kind of in that place ultimately. Yeah, I think the Nuggets are definitely a beneficiary of a world and a climate that Golden State dictated, right? Everybody decided we need a bunch of rangy, stretchy wings. And also, if we're going to play a big, he has to be able to play in space. Yep. And generally, the, the type of bigs who can play in space on defense 
cannot guard fucking Nikola Jokic. It's it's like you it's it, you just can't possess those two things. I go back to the bubble when the Lakers beat these guys kind of handily, even though some of those games were really close and went down to the wire. They had Dwight Howard and AD playing and finishing certain games, right? Uh, this These are... Dwight Howard won like five defensive players of the year. Although he was not at that level, he was still really good at defense in 2020. And Anthony Davis, as we know, is a defensive player of the year threat every single year. They had two of those dudes on the team and they could address that matchup. And, you know, the beauty of their versatility was that AD could be like, all right, remember when AD used to cry about playing center? It was like, all right, against certain matchups, you have to play center. The Golden States, the, you know, the Portlands, um, they're, they're going to stretch you out and be attacking and putting pressure on the three-point line. But then against the Nuggets, it's like, all right, we got a bruiser too. Uh, I think the Nuggets are beneficiaries of the fact that teams for years have been chasing light-footed, quick-footed big men, and nobody had anybody to guard Jokic. Like, you got to figure the Lakers back up big. In 2020, it's even JaVale McGee, who he's no Bill Russell, but, you know, whatever, he's a big body. He's not Wenyan Gabriel, you no. know? Um, this is what we're talking about. You know, Jacques Londale. You know, th these are the backup bigs we're talking about that Jokic went up against. And, and I think that's what the difference is. I don't know if it's a trend, but I know everybody goes into the offseason who sees themselves as a serious contender. They're like, how do I form my team in a way that can beat the champs? This offseason, people are going to be like, how do we beat the Nuggets? Right. Well, I think that's a good question then, because it's similar to when the Lakers won the title in 2020. And also when the Bucks won in 2021, where it seemed like these unicorns we all expected to kind of dominate the world, ultimately became those type of players. And I think you saw a mini swing, perhaps, from the big wing of Kawhi being the guy you all had to look out for quickly to, oh, everyone needs to match up against this size. Um, I wonder, Rob, are you still... Is that still where you are? Like, if you're a team kind of coming to the fore. It's like a Pistons, a Magic. Are you like, damn, we need to get to a point where we have guys to guard these guys? Or are you looking at it more like, well, actually, if we build a bulletproof small ball team with enough size, like the Celtics and Warriors in last year's finals, and to a certain extent, like we're saying with the Nuggets, that they just have size across many positions. Yeah. Like, like where, where are you leaning toward? Yeah, I think... What's interesting about that conversation and, and the broader unicorn conversation, like how you counter these guys, I guess ostensibly Jokic and Giannis are both unicorns. They could not be more different as players and like what sure. you would want to counter them could not be more different. So I don't think there's like a one size fits all option. I am a little bit more drawn to exactly what you laid out size across the board, not just for the switchability, yes. but for what it gives you in terms of the glass, what it gives you in terms of cross-matching and transition. Like what the Nuggets are showing is that there are so many ways for everyone to get jumbled up on the floor. And Jokic is so expert at not only attacking guys in the post, but picking out exactly where everyone is and everyone who could ostensibly have an advantage. That's really dangerous. And if that's kind of where we are, where there's enough of those playmakers around the league, whether you think about Jokic or think, you think about Luka Doncic, whether you think about any of the great passers in the league who can exploit mismatches in that particular way, that makes me a little nervous as, a, as a, someone putting together a team and thinking about like, oh, can we even afford 
weaker links? Can we even afford smaller guards on our roster? You know, I think there's a credible argument based on the matchup in this series that maybe having a point guard who's shorter than 6'4", 6'3", is just like not a, a viable thing for huge minutes unless that guard is, you know, just great at bodying people up. They have incredible hands. They can play bigger than their size. You know, there are some guys who are exceptions to the rule in this way, but you really need to be able to match up across the board physically to compete with a team like Denver. And not every opponent is going to have that. Not every champion every year is going to have that. But we know the Nuggets are going to be in this mix to stay. Like their their core members are young enough that you have to account for them. Yeah, and to me, if you if you're not going to be able to make Jokic uncomfortable defensively um, in your matchup, you better be the type of player that makes him uncomfortable on the other end. Meaning. Exactly. If you if you can't guard this guy one on one, cool. You better be a stretchy five then. You better give me the ability to play five out and have this guy play out in space. Or you have a Steph Curry, you have a Dame Lillard, where he's forced into the action by the guy with the actual ball, right? Like I think the thing about the Clippers, Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, like these are great players, but they don't put pressure on the center that way. These guys yeah. are ultimately mid-range assassins. Same with KD and, yeah. and Devin Booker, right? Like these guys were mid-range attackers. I think we would have got a fascinating series with the Warriors. Ultimately, I believe Denver would have beat them because this Warriors group was kind of uh, bad and disconnected, but they would have presented an incredible problem for the Nuggets defense and Jokic in particular because they 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 abused him pretty badly um, in last year's playoffs, right? And so to me, it's not like you you go overboard and just start signing all kinds of centers like a mad person. Um, I think you have to think about what Denver's deficiencies are and whether you can put together a roster that exploits those deficiencies. It's a great point. Like we we had considered Jokic's weakness to be, oh, what if he has to step up to guard these guys pulling up? Like, is he going to be able to get to Katie's jumper or Devin Booker's jumper? Well, Aston answered, and the really the blueprint, as you were saying, was is like you have to have the ability to pull up from three and get all the way to the rim, scampering around him. Because if you allow Jokic to play back. He's shown in this series, like he's going to use his length really effectively. He's going to challenge lots of shots. He's going to get hands on lots of balls. He can impact things if you let him stay still or stay static. By the way, turns out those advanced stats guys that said that Jokic is just as good guarding around the rim as Joel Embiid are true. Man. (laughs) I don't think that's true. I really don't think that is what they're saying. Who was there was there was someone who was on this podcast who was making the argument that Jokic was like actually a pretty passable defender by the numbers. It kind of yeah. bore out. I can't remember yeah. who it was, but we'll have yeah. to check the tape. Yeah, yeah. It has we nothing to re- do with the fact that they're so good on offense that he could play in a set defense like pretty much ninety percent of the time. Turns <laughs> out, turns out that helps. He's a large man in the, the heat. Best are unfortunately, is a great pretty offense, small. Justin. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> if, if I was like as big as a queen size mattress and I could just sit in the paint and, and just swat away gnats, like I would do well. Justin well, so. just can't let a Jokic compliment go by. Nope. I just have to be the counterbalance, just to make sure that people don't think we're on the take. For the Nuggets, <laughs> like like most of the people on NBA Twitter, okay? Mike am, Malone is my guy, man. Northeast guy, New Jersey guy. You born can call on Long Mike Island. even. 
Yeah, yeah Mikey. <laughs> we call him Mikey in the neighborhood. Yeah. All right. But to, to get to the other side of this, like, where did the heat fall into this? Because on the one hand, they do have a lot of those two-way guys that I think a lot of teams are lacking, like not only two-way, but guys who could shoot threes, as we've seen time and time and time and time and time again in the po- in this postseason. Um, unfortunately, it seems like Bam, despite all of like how advanced he is and how skilled he is, particularly passing the ball, he's almost like too traditional and yet not big enough for this matchup. And so like when I look at the Heat broadly, it's like, oh, yeah, they have some things that are like in in step with the times with all of these two way guys. On the other hand, I wonder like if is Bam too conventional? Because like let's say they they look at their roster this offseason, they want to take like they want to get a little bigger, right? Well, can they add size with two non shooters with Bam being the other one? And is he going to be are are they going to be able to get enough shooting on the floor with him there? You know what I mean? I think we're overthinking it. You know, hmm. Bam, Bam has had great playoff performances in the last two years against Giannis and against Joel Embiid. That's their competition, right? Like, I, you want to you want to think about okay, what if the Nuggets make the finals and we also make the finals again, and we have this a repeat of this matchup? But I think that you really can't get that far ahead of yourself when ultimately Bam is a good answer and a good counter for the vast majority of the Eastern Conference field, and that's what you want. Jokic is going to give everyone trouble. Like, show me the defender who can stop him right now. And Bam, I think, is doing a fair job of like trying to front him and get around and bother him. He's doing about as much as anyone in the league right now can. Jokic is just that unstoppable. Yeah, that makes sense. I do look more broadly at the center position, though, and I wonder if Bam is around the cutoff for what amounts as a center that you can really pay. Like this is something that I've been tracking for a little while here where I think for a good time now there has been this assumption that there's almost like a uh and it, it pulled to an extreme of where the center position is. You have like the minimum guys and you have like the superstar, super max sort of players and that there would just be a chasm in the middle. Surprisingly enough, there are still a lot of centers making a fair amount of money. And I do wonder, like... And they all play for the Minnesota Timberwolves. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. But no, you, you look at, like, the super max guys. Carl Anthony Towns, Jokic, Embiid, Giannis, Gobert, and then even the max guys, AD, Aiton, Bam, Porzingis. There are definitely some spottiness in that field. But as soon as you get past that kind of tier of, of money-making, you get into, like, the, the Vucevics and the Capellas and the Turners and the Allens. And I do wonder more broadly if we're still at a place where we're almost overvaluing even like the B-level centers. And that when we see someone like Jared Allen kind of struggle in the playoffs and openly admit that he wasn't ready for that stage, like I wonder (laughs) if a guy at his level and also a guy who was highly drafted enough that you feel like you need to overpay to keep in order to retain, that is where you get into the most difficulty. Take Cat, for instance, right? The second he inked that deal, I looked at that and I was just like, that is a terrible, terrible contract. That I That is justified. Like, they, they had to do that. But at least they could say to themselves, this man is an elite offensive talent. He is, he is a bona fide weapon on offense. We pay for elite capabilities. You could say that. 
I think when you get into the Vucevic, Capella, even my guy, Miles Turner, um, that's when you start saying, like, are you elite at anything? No, right? But the, but Miles Turner's a really good defender. And he's he found his three-point shot again. And so it's like, all right, I could pay you. But I think to get paid at the tippy top, you have to be elite at something. Gobert, for instance, used to be an elite defensive player, right? Um, and then if you are really good at something, then you can also get paid. Anything else, man, if you're just getting by, you know, like you're respectable. Like to me, you're just a scrap heap guy. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just, I wonder like if teams with like Nurkish at center and Valanchunas and Mitchell Robinson. I, I almost feel, and maybe I'm just saying what is kind of But Mitchell Robinson is incredible wisdom. at defense though. And rebounding. Very good yeah, offensive see, rebounder he, as we saw. He's got like identifiable playoff traits. Um, those other two guys you mentioned, eh, Nur- like, Nur- like what does Nurkish do for you in a playoff series? I guess theoretically he could probably beat some small man switches, maybe. But not even, not even really. He, he gives you know it all like, Little little push shots that like aren't consistent against those types of matchups. He's a scrappy guy to me. Players like him are tough. I think what's interesting about this broader situation is it's not like any of these teams set out to, oh, we really want to pay our center $30 million. It's just they get stuck and they have a really good team and their center becomes a free agent and you have to pay him or else you just lose a very important part of your team. And then all of a sudden they're making $35 million and you're like, what do we do with DeAndre Ayton now? You, you get boxed into those corners all the time from a team-building standpoint in the NBA, but I think never more painfully than when you sign a center and that center doesn't live up to what you need them to be in playoff basketball. Yeah, that's a great point. And I do wonder if that error or that sort of worst-case scenario becomes worse in the new CBA when actually paying... It, we might even see more extremes in terms of who is making a lot of money versus who doesn't. Like, the uh, basically... a. Uh, uh, flattening out of the middle class. I just think it would be crazy for a team to go out and give, you know, a middling, like a Claxton or, well, they not maybe not Claxton, but like a younger big or say like Wiseman. Let's just say he develops into something close to what we thought he could be. He's he's young. He's athletic. Yo, I'm going to pay this guy $35 because I think he can hold up against Jokic. That, that's just, that's not going to work. <laughs> and that's another one where it's like, I wonder, given how high the rookie scale is for high draft picks, I wonder if teams are going to be warded off from drafting big men higher, even still. Because how many years do we go into the draft where it's like, can't draft a center, like they're not going to be able to play in the playoffs, well, and all of a sudden, wise, yeah, Wiseman and, and Bamba. Bamba makes like $9 million to $10 million a year, in part because he was drafted so high, you know? So uh, we'll see about that. I think it's interesting, too, when you break down the salary brackets of what bigs are being paid right now, or even just look around the league at like, okay, if, if, if the template is who are these skilled bigs who are going to be very important to playoff rosters five years from now, there's not like a, a big wave of up-and-coming young centers with a ton of ball skills. You know, there's like Alperin Shangun, who, who knows what he'll ever be defensively, and even offensively has not shown that he can be like a productive hub of a stable team yet. Other than that, it's guys who can do like one thing, but not all the things. You know, maybe they can pass a little bit, but they can't really handle. Maybe they can handle, but they can't really shoot. Like Claxton is a great example of that, of a guy who like, would I rather have Nick Claxton at his price point or some of these other guys, you know, your Vucevic's or whatnot, even your Clint Capella's or your Jared Allen's at their price point. 
I could understand the argument for Nick Claxton, but that dude's also about to be a free agent and also about to get paid. So it, it's just a matter of time before these guys hit the market and then you have to overpay to keep them. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match. With Indeed, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash RingerMBA. Just go to Indeed.com slash RingerMBA right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Honda. There's a lot that could impress you about the all-new Prologue EV. True, it's got class-leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Sonic. Fuel up for game day and any day, really, at Sonic. For a limited time, you can get the new $1.99 Sonic Crispy Tender Wraps. And trust me, you don't want to miss out. A crispy chicken tender and bold flavors like hickory barbecue and cheesy Baja. Crisp lettuce and melty cheese that make the perfect bite. So go get yourself some TLC, some tender love and chicken. And buy a $1.99 Sonic Crispy Chicken Tender Wrap today. Tax not included. Limited time only at participated Sonic drive-ins. All right. Next on the list. Was depth slash continuity a sneaky advantage as Star Trades ravaged rosters across the league and parity kind of reigned this season? Rob and I have talked about this off mic before, where I think it's pretty well established, and not to take away anything from the Nuggets, but this was one of the most parity-filled seasons in NBA history. Going into the season, even uh, the the favorite had the smallest like odds since 1984-85. We wrote about that on the Ringer going into the season. And so I think that bore out where we knew who the good teams were, but I don't think anyone could say confidently that this one team was a dominant force, etc. Right? Well, let me, let me push back on that because sure. I think going into the season, that is true. Having watched these Western Conference playoffs, do you feel like there was a lot of parity there? Probably not in the West, but I also don't know how to reconcile the playoffs with the regular season at this point. <laughs> tell, tell me about it, brother. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so, like, I would still probably say, like, if you were to flash back in hindsight, I would still say I would expect the, the title to go to the Bucks, the Celtics, the Nuggets, and whoever else who else am i mean maybe, maybe the, the sixers or something the clippers you you love the clippers i don't remember that one. um but so i i would still say that this was a little bit more of a flattened title race than we have in years past where it was like you know warriors calves every single time and even not then like celtics warriors wasn't too much of an outlier like he are the biggest outlier in recent history, probably one of all of history. So I don't, yeah. I don't really know how to answer that. I, I mean, to me, like I hear what you're saying about that, about depth and continuity, but at the same time, the Boston Celtics had both yep. and managed to flame out quite embarrassingly. Embarrassingly, well, not um, continuity in the coaching spot, though. 
Well, that's fair. Well, that's fair. you could argue too much continuity. <laughs> Maybe. Mm. Yeah. On the coaching staff as a whole, yeah. And so to me, I think it's the same as, it, as it's ever been in the sense that you need to have a game-breaking star, man. Like, you need to have a guy that has Eric Spolster switching up game plans for the seventh time in four games, right? Like, you need to have a guy that can break shit open, make the defense divert um, extra resources, and everything else falls into place like that. Because, look, they got Bruce Brown for a pittance, right? Like, he's a good player, but ultimately teams are like, yo, if I have the right stars, I can make somebody into a Bruce Brown. They watch Christian Brown have one good game. It's like, I can get a guy to do that one or two times for me in a series. And so, I don't know. I've never really been a whole a whole depth person because I'm just like, people like Mike D'Antoni and Tibbs are going to play six guys anyway. So, like, what are we even talking about um, in the playoffs anyway? And so I'm not there on the depth issue, although I will say, man, the talent level of the NBA is at the highest that it's ever been. And the like the worst teams in the NBA are not pushovers anymore. Right. Like, remember that Bobcats team that won like eight games the entire season? Like, we that just doesn't, that's not a thing anymore. There are no talent depleted teams like that. And I think part of it too is these non playoff teams, like, they can get off of good players straight up. Like, just look at the, ja- the Jazz, all of the good, useful players. They just got off of them. Yeah, and sent them to teams that you know did well in the playoffs this year, um, or even uh, or even somebody like Mike Conley. He really helped Minnesota. But guess what? They got they have Ant Edwards. Like it's really helpful. I know this is going to sound revelatory. It's really helpful to have stars. Well, <laughs> let, let me make the case that like this is a kind of an outlier year in terms of everything. So. I have four teams that would have otherwise been right at the top of the title race that were struck by injuries and other sort of situations and the Clippers, the Warriors, their situations being Draymond punching a teammate to start the season, which they have now conceded probably derailed everything. I don't know how much that is just like like, uh, attributing everything to that in retrospect, but who's to say? And then Wiggins. I think we are to say. I think literally anyone is to say it. It tracks. It's true. And then the Grizzlies, similar situation. Pelicans lost Zion yet again. But I feel like those things happen to teams and contenders throughout a regular season. So to me, that's not so much of an outlier. What is an outlier is you had this rush of superstar trades and a lot of teams depleting their depth and most of their roster in order to get that big guy in there. Namely, the Cavs, obviously with Donovan Mitchell, the Wolves, the Mavericks midseason with Kyrie Irving, the Lakers for half a season with the the ghost of Russell Westbrook, the Nets eventually trading all their guys midseason, the Suns eventually. That is six teams that would otherwise be in the mix some more than the other. And so I wonder if I step back, like the Nuggets probably would have been in this race regardless. They, they could have made the finals against a lot of these teams at full strength, right? Not taking anything away from the Nuggets. Certainly the I, Clippers. Certainly the clip. Um, I do wonder if their odds were increased, if only because while all these other teams were figuring their shit out, they already had everything in house. They had a rock solid five that would is one of the best in, in recent memory. And they also had 
two or three other guys who've come and shown that they ha- they could create a, a playoff rotation. And so did they have enough depth and continuity at the right time is, I guess, what I'm wondering. Here's the interesting thing about that is we talk about the Nuggets and all the continuity that they've built. And there's truth in that. But also in terms of who has played the minutes on the roster this year versus last year, they have some of the least minute continuity in the entire league because of the injuries. So yeah, like Jamal Murray is on the roster. He's been a Nugget. Michael Porter Jr. has been a Nugget. But overall, year over year, they have not had a lot of continuity. They've had to remake a lot of things on the fly. And in addition to that, KCP, Bruce Brown, Christian Brown, all new to the team this year. So they kind of made that rock-solid five. And to the extent that they have depth, like there have been playoff series this year where they went seven deep. And that was kind of all they could really play. So they're a fascinating team in that clearly they are deeper than the Phoenix Suns, who just like did not have the bodies to compete against the Nuggets. But I don't necessarily think of the Nuggets as like a bastion, this like a Boston Celtics-esque construction of a team. They're a really good five or maybe a really good six, really. I would include Bruce Brown in the six. And then you have Jeff Green, who's going to give what he can give. Some nights it's going to be better than others. Christian Brown, unplayable in some matchups, but very effective in others. That's kind of where they sit, and that's been enough. But it's been enough because Jokic and Murray have been great, and Gordon and Porter have generally been very, very good. And that's enough. I think what matters, too, is that they didn't have to give shit up to have their stars, right? Um, They drafted these guys. If you can draft a star, if you can sign a superstar outright in free agency, that makes your team-building exercise a lot simpler, because you're not diverting resources and sending picks into 2050 so that you could, you know, get the guy that's ultimately supposed to change your fortune. So once you're operating from, I never, like my baseline, again, they went to the conference finals in 2020. They were hurt in 21 and they still won a playoff round. People forget that. They still won a playoff round. And so what are we talking about? playoff actual success with their continuity as well. And again, they didn't have to swing a KD trade. They didn't have to swing, you know, a Paul Paul George trade. They didn't have to do that kind of thing to to bring in the people who make their team go. And so that's why I think they're operating from a they've always been operating from a position of strength. And guess what? If this thing wouldn't have worked this year, I bet you they would have been on the phone for Dame Lillard. Could've you know been. what I mean? If th- if that was something, if it would have if it would have blown up in the playoffs, if they got beaten five games in the second round, they'd have been like, you know what? We packing up one of these young dudes. We gonna send some picks. We gonna go get Dame Lillard and change and change the the way we operate in here. And so to me, that's what it is. It's like drafting or signing outright guys that make all the difference for your team. And there were points in the process where the drafting and the development of these players and how far along they were was a little bit more controversial. Like I remember when Jamal Murray got his massive extension ahead of schedule. Yeah. There was a lot of public pushback about, are we sure you want to give this amount of money to this guy who's proven some and looks very talented, but why wouldn't you wait and let him be a restricted free agent and match the offer that comes? But no, the way the nuggets operated was they drafted. Well, they paid big money to keep guys in house some of those bets paid off, some of them didn't, but they were able to get out from the ones that didn't. And ultimately, they end up here with two guys who work incredibly well together. 
Yeah. I think the Murray consternation was more, A, like you mentioned, they gave it to him as soon as possible. Right. And B, was top dollar as soon as possible. And on the one hand, you could argue like maybe that helped all of the good vibes train to, to continue on. I think that's a question or a, a, like a, a fallout, like a negative fallout that wouldn't bear fruit until later on when they need to stack contracts on top of what are now three max contracts, right? So yeah, but it did work out. And to your point, and I think both of your guys' overall point, I do think having a bulletproof drafting system and development system, probably one of the best for what, five, six years? To the point, and we've talked about this before, like that they could trade for an Aaron Gordon by giving up guys like a Gary Harris, who at one point was part of that bulletproof starting lineup until he kind of fell off. Um, RJ Hampton, another guy who was like at least intriguing when they got rid of him and draft picks and yada, yada, yada. So that's interesting. But where did the Heat, I do want to get into like the Heat's like feeder system, but I do wonder, do the Heat fit into this conversation at all in terms of like depth and continuity? Or are they just such an outlier that like trying to draw anything from this team at this point is just really difficult? I mean, their continuity comes from the top, though, right? It's that they're able to set a standard and a wait for it culture (laughs) in within their organization. Like that's that's what you're hoping for, right? When you keep the same guys around player wise, and there's this. Um, expected level of excellence that the players can dictate. Like, that's usually what you're hoping for. The Heat have, have manufactured that, that culture and that standard via management. So I think that's something totally different um, and can't really be replicated anywhere else, right? Like, you're not going to sign the next GM and say, go do what Pat Riley does in Miami for us. <laughs> like, it, it's just, you, you just can't do that. But that, but, but that is continuity, though. It's the same guys in charge. It's the same people holding every single person on the team accountable. And that is, you know, that's consistency. It absolutely is. And ultimately, they do have star continuity relative to the rest of the league. Like Jimmy and Bam haven't been together for decades at this point. But even just having a couple of years together, I think they're in year four right now. That's more than most star duos can claim. But the the interesting thing about the Heat model is that top-down consistency that you're laying out, was where because it is organizational, because it is from the scouting department, because it is in player development, we talk about all these Heat success stories, but the reality of those success stories, by and large, is that the players who go through that system and come out better and improved, they're almost like grist for the mill a little bit. They come in, they play well, they get paid, they leave. They're not necessarily guys you bring in and they're just going to like stick around for years and years and years unless they happen to get a contract that's too big to move. But ultimately, they keep finding people to replace them. Like That's what the Heat are so good at. It just kind of so happens that the players that they find ultimately are kind of shown the door in a lot of these instances. Yeah, I, that's kind of the paradox of the Heat culture. It's that you get good and just like good enough to push them out the door, right? And I think it's funny that there are already reports, and I don't even know if we call it a report, but at least Windhorse had a column up today basically suggesting like, yeah, the Heat are probably going to go star hunting this summer because they found uh, out that they, they, are. They, they weren't good enough in order to go toe-to-toe with the Nuggets. Did you guys see, by the way, Chris Haynes had a, had a column for Bleacher Report about 
the idea of the talent gap in this series. And Udonis Haslam had some very choice words about like just in disbelief about the fact that anyone could think that this Nuggets team was more talented than this Heat team. And I, I'm <laughs> look, I know there's a lot of pride there. I know these guys are competitive. I know you always think that your team is good enough to win, but what are we talking about? It's Max Struess, guys. Like, come on, we don't gotta do this. <sighs> well, there are also people talking about how Jokic's athleticism wasn't appreciated enough to the point where like redefining athleticism. I'm, I'm just like, I don't think that's don't, where we need to go with this. He's brilliant at a lot of to, things, but I don't, I don't know if he's particularly athletic. You know, he is in good shape. I think that people do confuse that. He is in good shape. He's in incredible condition. Yes. There's con- playing shape and then there's just like having Insta- there's Instagram shape, you know? Right. For right. me, for me with Jokic and his athleticism and his playing shape, it, it only matters for one reason. And, it, and that's that it should send a message to white Americans everywhere that if he could do it, you <laughs> could do Christ. it. That's, that's what I got away from it. That's like the summer I'm going to I'm going to Barry's boot camps every day, man. Serbian, Serbians are built different, guys. I don't know what to tell you. If he it's can true. do it, you can do it. <laughs> but I do want to have uh, the two-way kind of conversation because as much as it's talked to death, like it is still absolutely incredible that what the Heat have done. Um, so seven undrafteds on the roster alone and two additional two uh, two-way guys who are also undrafted. Here's my question. On the one hand, I think you're seeing a lot of people suggest like, oh, this could be a new model, right? Especially as the new CBA makes it tougher to sign guys to bigger contracts. It's going to be tougher to stack adult contracts. You need some of these other finder sort of guys, these hidden gems. To this point, Denver swung a weird-ass trade in the midst of their finals run where they traded a far-off pick for more recent picks with the Thunder, in specifically in order to keep the Blood Boy system going, where they have a bunch of these young guys <laughs> that they could just put around Jokic and Porter and Murray, right? My question is, are we at the end of things? Like, is the fact that this is getting so much publicity almost like the New York Times writing about a trend and then it instantly dies as a result of that? Like, it reaches New York Times status and then it's almost too widespread? Because I will look around and, like, Part of what makes the Heat's two-way success so good, and John Hollinger wrote about this very well on The Athletic, I would suggest people go and check this out, is that they're constantly cycling through people. They're not like caught up in, in just like, yeah. they found this one guy and we're going to like hold on to him for two to three years and we're going to make this work. They cut five two-way guys loose over the course of a calendar year. Unfortunately, in the new CBA, there's going to be a third two-way slot, which means there are fewer guys to cycle through. And so I wonder, Rob, do you have any thoughts about this? Do you think like, or have you talked to teams and they're like, oh, we're so excited to, to make the two-way G League almost like a minor league system? Or is this actually way tougher to replicate? And not only just because of like whatever development secret sauce that he have, but because like just the, the systems at work are also going to be more complicated and difficult than people think. They are going to be more complicated, but I do think the third spot helps to, to your point about like, it's not a proper farm system, but the way the G League sets up now, you don't actually have control as an NBA team over everyone on that roster. You don't actually get to claim them as part of your system. They're just these two-way guys. Anyone else can be claimed by any other team. And so the idea that there's even just one more prospect who you could invest in their development as an actual member of your franchise, I think is beneficial. The problem with trying to replicate any heat model is they do it better than you. 
right? And some some of it's not just from a scouting standpoint. Like if you don't have someone in your front office who knows how to work the cap like Andy Ellisberg does, you're just not going to do it to the same effect. And so this is a team that works the cap very well, who develops players really well, who has very strict standards about how those play, what kind of shape those players need to be in, and scouts incredibly well. It's a very tough combination to find and to build, and it takes time and it takes continuity. And really, it, it takes decades of work to put yourself in that place as an organization. The one thing I think you can model is just taking the G League operation seriously in general. And not just because you get to pump your own prospects through it, but you get to see everybody. The, the other side of what I'm saying about like the G League not being a proper farm system is you can claim the guy who rolls in on the Texas Legends because he's not protected by any means. And so if you're good at plucking people from other teams' developmental systems, you can do what the Celtics have done, which is like Max Struess, other teams had other opportunities to sign Max Struess. Many, a couple of them did. And they had him on the roster and they said, this guy's not good enough. And the Heat plucked him out of those situations and were able to like help him like actualize himself as a player. And the reason why this matters is that essentially with this new CBA, the owners have finally hard capped the league. Like that's just straight up what effectively, you're running, yeah. effectively running up against, right? And so you're not going to be able to do what the Warriors did last year which is <laughs> have Wiggins, <laughs> have Steph on a Supermax, have Clay on a damn near Supermax, have Draymond being paid basically more than an average power forward. Um, you know, have Otto Porter, like have, like pay, um, you know, Jordan Poole an extension in the offseason. Like you're just not going to be able to stack guys known quantities the way that you used to be able to. And I think this two-way stuff, this Miami stuff, you know, even though teams aren't as good as the Heat, they better figure out a way to do it because it's the old way of just being able to, you know, manipulate the cap with all of these tricks, all of these accounting tricks, which is all like the, the you know, the bird rights and stuff like the arenas rule and blah, blah, blah. Like these are all just accounting tricks. They've effectively shut off all of these loopholes um, to stockpile talent. And so, yeah, teams are going to have to figure this shit out. The one way the Heat have been able to work that system that I think teams, even in that new CBA, can model, it starts genuinely with like using your actual roster spots, not just your two-way spots, to give actual young prospects a chance, even if they are undrafted guys. Like Gabe Vincent came in as a second, like first and second year player was getting at least as a second-year player, was getting genuine minutes with the Heat rotation. You look at other franchises, and the guy their, their last roster spots go to one of two groups. Who the star wants on the team, you know, guys they've known before, guys they've played with before, guys that used to be good but aren't anymore, or the, the favorite, Quinn Cook roster spot? Hypothetically, <laughs> you know, he, look, Quinn Cook, amazing hang, apparently. Yeah, has to be. I, indisputably. Elite. Elite hang, or a favor for an agent for someone who either is on the roster or they want to be on the roster. And look, if you use your actual roster spots for actual basketball players who you think might actually be good, it turns out there's a tangible benefit to that. Yeah, there's also a third subcategory of players that the coach just likes because they know the playbook. Whereas as opposed to like the young guy who makes a ton of mistakes that they now have to coach and spend a lot of time coaching through. Totally. Um, 
Yeah, it's a really good point. I mean, Austin Reeves, in a lot of ways, is like the prime example of the good and bad of this sort of thing. And so, like, if when you strike Rich with a player like that, and to this point, like, I don't know if the Heat have found someone even on his level. He might be like the top tier of what you can get out of a two way guy. Unfortunately, he immediately needs to get paid. And we're now talking about Reeves getting close to what would be his max, not like max in terms of like super max and whatever, but like he almost immediately needs that money. And you get caught into a situation where like, what do the Lakers do if they let him go? And so to a, a large degree, like it's not just that the Heat have been successful at this. It's the volume of success. And I just don't know if that's going to be replicable. Like even if teams that are good at this, maybe you do well one out of every 10 two-way yeah. spots or something, that would be amazing. The Heat are like pretty much at 50% at this but, point. Just but the Heat have, guys four, off the they have four of these guys on their freaking team. Playing How about rotation, a team yeah. just find one, right? Yeah. Like, you know, I'm friends with a lot of Golden State Warriors fans and all they do is cry about the lack of development of the young guys. Like, there's just been no developmental gems anywhere. Like, those are lottery one. picks. Those are, those are yeah. high-drafted first-round <laughs> picks and high-drafted players. So just get one. If you're a real team and you can find one Max Struess to add to your rotation for cheap as hell, like that's that's a big, big find. I will say I am excited to see more two-way guys or guys getting chance on two-ways, if only because these guys tend to be just like the most beloved players on the roster from the local fan bases. Like what does a fan base love more than the guy who came out of nowhere that was homegrown, that's just like a total weirdo nothing, and all of a sudden, he's making big-ass shots in the NBA Finals. Like, I want to see more of that, and it almost might be a nice little counter to all the star trade movement to the point where, like, there was a rumor this week about Harden potentially going to the Suns in a trade for Chris Paul, and I'm like, the amount of, like, reunions in that one scenario just fucking (laughs) blows my mind. I can't even think about it. Um, But the two-way guys, like, I want to see more of those. I want to see Max Struess like come from fucking Sioux Falls, and all of a sudden he's like drilling five threes in a final. That's awesome. That's all you want. You want the broadcast anecdote of this. You know, this guy was playing in <laughs> Delaware this afternoon, and he just got called up he's, to the he's team. He's still chasing the high from Lynn Sanity. That's all that is. <laughs> Aren't we? Aren't we all was? Uh, there's there's a real like I was in Delaware half an hour ago. Heat drop here that uh, the movie Heat, not the team Heat. Uh, that, that I think would be applicable, but we'll, we'll sidestep that one. Um, well, the other big part of, of kind of the developmental pipeline with the Heat is also just Spo uh, and, and what he's been able to do, particularly in the postseason. Here's my question. Has Spo reached like 2017 pop level where he is able to, I wouldn't say add wins in the postseason, but certainly increase your your margin of your odds for winning and is that a partly a product of potentially some of this parody that we were talking before like does someone like spo all of a sudden mean more when like actual rostered like lineup decisions and like playing certain defenses at certain times does that matter more when the talent level is potentially theoretically flattened what do you mean reached to me, Eric Spolster is probably one of the five best coaches in the history of the league. In the history of the league. Wow. Wow. I think he's, he's shown himself capable of coaching all types of teams, star-laden, mm-hmm. undermanned, everything in between. He consistently gives those teams creative you know, like, implica- like a- applications of their talent. 
he's in that like very sweet spot where he's open-minded, but he's accountable for the things he tries. He's a good communicator that knows his shit. He can work with stars, but he holds those stars actually accountable and he isn't afraid to coach them. So the idea that he's adding, you know, whether it's points or wins or, you know, you know, fractions of wins, however you want to look at it, I think he's absolutely in that group. I don't think he necessarily had like a big ladder to climb here to, to put himself into that territory. Yeah, uh, obviously, I think he's the best coach in the NBA for sure. You know, again, <laughs> I'd rather have stars. <laughs> you know what I mean? Obviously, like, yeah. At the at the end of the day, like Mike Budenholzer got to the finals and won. You know, um, like Frank Vogel. <laughs> Mike Budenholzer sitting on his couch and he can't even escape. Got, got to the finals and won. Like I, I just think, to me, it's like you're more likely to to get a star, honestly, than it is to get a coach like Eric Spolstra. So you're you know saying I mean? this isn't a Brad Stevens, like you would only trade five players oh my God. to have him. I remember, I remember that <laughs> nonsense. That was so ridiculous. Um, no, I, I, I don't. I don't. Um, I think Spo is... Spo is Spo, but again, like even with all of his wizardry on game planning and all of that, like... You can't replicate the support that he gets from management. Yes. Like, he can push around any player. Most coaches don't have that leeway because they don't have Pat Riley looking everybody in the eye and saying, nope, it's Spo. It's not you. It's us, right? And so, like, even to that extent, I, you know, I find it hard to sort of use Spo and what he's doing and say, oh, you know, this is going to be a greater advantage. You can't even achieve that. Your owner's Mark Cuban. Well, what about more specifically, and this is the last one I have in my list, zone defense, which the Heat have used effectively this postseason more than any other team in the postseason at this point. Unfortunately, did not play it last game, uh, probably, which speaks to maybe its ineffectiveness or maybe it's just like the, the effectiveness of the Denver Nuggets. Like, Rob, do you see zone being used more at all as a result of this or was this just is this just another heat thing i think it's more of a heat thing i mean if you think about the only other team over the last five years that even did a comparable amount of zone in the playoffs to what the heat are doing right now it was the heat in the bubble that was it (laughs) that's really the only other team that's played this much zone and we didn't see in the aftermath of that some big wave of, of other teams trying this i think there's a couple reasons for it one being that some coaches, a, a big chunk of coaches, are just kind of allergic to it. They think it builds bad habits. They think it, they don't put pressure on the ball when you ask pros to do it. They think high-level players can beat it. And so they don't want to spend a lot of time on it. And certainly in a league where there's fewer practices, now even fewer shoot-arounds, to be honest with you, the idea of dedicating your very precious time to, oh, we're going to build this whole other defense that will probably fail, is just not how a lot of coaches want to spend those windows. And so I, I don't think that there will be a lot of applications of it. But plus, honestly, you need players who have a really high ap- like aptitude for defense to run it at the, at the pro level. And you may not think of the Kayla Bartons and the Gabe Vincents of the world as those types of players, but they were signed to the Heat for a reason. And it's their capacity to play really hard. It's their understanding of like how to work in space. Like They had what the Heat needed to fill those particular spots. Or, you know, do even quote-unquote good defenders or good man defenders, we've seen time and time again at all levels of competition, college, pro, international, being very good at man defense does not make you very good at zone defense. In a lot of cases, they are totally opposite skill sets. 
I like the heat zone, but <laughs> zone is bullshit. Um, it's a fucking gimmick defense. This, like, honestly, it it works against a group like Boston, who literally just could not figure this shit out. Right? Um, when you're when you're not playing against an unfocused, mentally untough team, um, like say Denver. The shots that they get are layups, dunks, or wide-open jumpers when they beat the zone. Like, when when the team figures it out, they get plum looks against freaking zone defenses. I don't see it as a thing. And, you know, if I were if I were a GM or something and my coach was like, hey, man, I'm about to do the heat zone thing, I'd be like, bro, no, no. Keep your man in front. Man and ball. I think Syracuse <laughs> ruined this for everyone. And now everyone just associates the zone with with kind of not being able to play defense, you know, because it was it was such a trick at the college level. Getting an and- actual defensive stance. <laughs> it's not that complicated, y'all. Are there anything else you guys want to hit here? Who you got in game five, Varier? Put your money where your mouth is. Well, I picked the the Nuggets in five. I, I oh, remember right. you saying what heat Six. in seven. Six, six, no. <laughs> Nuggets. This guy's disrespectful. I can't believe this guy. The nerve of this guy. I picked, I picked the Nuggets in six yeah. because of my respect for the culture. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, I think they, that's, they're, they're going to beat these guys in game five at home. It really does feel that way. Anything you glean, Rob, from, from being there live at game four, despite like the perhaps like the the excess bloodshed from our friend Bernie uh, that we were spared of. Just a vicious fight. You know, I really wasn't anticipating that as part of my, my timeout entertainment. I think one of the things that popped for me from game four was we probably need to have a more thorough conversation about Jamal Murray specifically as a playmaker. Mm. He's, he's now the first player ever to have 10 plus assists in his first four finals game. That's from ESPN stats and info. And some of the reads he was making with Jokic off the floor, against the trap, cross-court stuff, like pretty complex passes are just not what his reputation is as a player. And there are guys who you blitz and you trap because you think you can catch them sleeping. And there are guys you blitz and you trap because you don't want them to have the ball anymore. And that's kind of where the heat are. Is like Murray has been so good. They're just trying to get the ball to go to somebody else. And he has killed them with some of these feeds. Easy easy passes out, hard passes out. He's showing like the full range of what you want kind of a combo combo point guard spot to be right now. Beautifully said, Rob. Um, even when he was drafted, it was this idea that he was this combo guard kind of guy, score first kind of guy. Like that was his reputation, kind of a gunner yeah. um, for a reputation. And, and the fact that he's developed his floor game into this, this wonderful you know, ability to set guys up and read three layers of the freaking defense. That's that's incredible stuff. Credit to him and the work he's done to that end. I'm old enough to remember when Buddy Heald versus Jamal Murray <laughs> oh my God. was a debate. To the point where Rob and I talk about this like twice every year. Yeah, I was going to say every six months or so, I'm just like, <laughs> I, just, I just remembered again that this yeah. was a conversation. And, and someone man. on the front lines of that battle who was was kind of like jabbed at locally for not even picking a side, but suggesting that Murray might have theoretically more upside by not being a college senior and Murray being a college freshman 
was ridicule. <laughs> they strung him up and they strung him up in the town square. It's true. Oh, um, so Magic Johnson tweeted this yesterday. At the end of the day, this final series boils down to the fact that the Nuggets are a more talented team than the Heat. Don't I tell you, Donis. Don't tell you, Donis Haslam. All right. So, Waz, are you picking the Nuggets in Game Nuggets Five? Nuggets in Five, baby. Wow. Nuggets in Five, World Champions, the team of destiny. Rob, you think the same? I think so. I think I think that's where we're at. I mean, even just watching the Heat hanging their heads come off the court, some of some of the scenes in that locker room. I know they're frustrated. I'm I'm sure they're going to come back and fight, but. They look like a team that kind of knows they don't have a lot of answers to what the Nuggets are dishing out. The worst thing that could happen is that the Heat win and then they lose in six, just elongating the series and forcing us to basically pretend like we don't still think that the Nuggets are going to win this series. And then like, maybe there's a chance. Uh, those are the worst podcasts. So for personally, I, w- I would like to avoid that. So the worst thing that could happen is I go spend three days in Miami. Three more days. <laughs> I, honestly, if I were to to paint a hell for you, that would be like sort of what it would look like. No, 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 no. The, the, food, the food is way too good. The food is way too good. Okay. Well, if that happens, I'll, I'll buy you a cabana hat. Um. All right. Let's uh. Let's wrap it there. I think there are some <laughs> some bigger questions that we can get into it once the the nugs win about Murray and, and and Gordon and whatnot. Um. But for today, we'll wrap it up. Thank you to Jesse Lopez for filling in on production. Uh, thank you to Ben Cruz for also chiming in from a birthday party for his father-in-law, something like that. Uh, but if you're out there in the streets of the Bay, say hi to Ben. We'll be back on Wednesday. We'll see you. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes, you know, we're in Florida, we'll be in New York, we want to take the wife on a quick vacation and get away. Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side by side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC slim fit trouser, but I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com.